Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFFNOW, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jesse Eisenberg, an actor you'll know from films like Noah Baumbach's The Squid and the Whale, Greg Matola's Adventureland, Kelly Reichardt's Night Moves, the Zombieland films, the Now You See Me's, and of course he played Mark Zuckerberg in David Fincher's The Social Network, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award. He's just come off a run as the title character on the acclaimed FX series Fleischman is in Trouble, and this week he releases his first feature as a writer-director, When You Finish Saving the World, an expansion of his audible audio drama that stars Julianne Moore and Finn Wolfhard as a mother and son so caught up in their respective narratives that they can't find room for one another. It's playing in the U.S. right now, and it opens in Canada this Friday, January 27th. We've got it at the Lightbox, and you should check it out. Jesse picked another actor's first feature, Richard Ayoade's Submarine. It's set in 1980s Wales and follows the efforts of teenage misfit Oliver Tate to keep his parents from drifting apart and lose his virginity before he turns 16. Not necessarily in that order. Starring Craig Roberts, Sally Hawkins, Noah Taylor, and Yasmin Page, and featuring Patty Considine as a neighbor Oliver believes is determined to steal his mum away from his dad, it's a thoughtful, richly realized drama from an actor most people associate with comedies that unpacks the usual precocious coming-of-age narrative and finds something tender and true inside. This is someone else's movie. My history with it is um, just that I had done this movie, The Double, um, as you mentioned, uh, with the same director, Richard Aiwade. And after the movie, I missed hanging out with Richard so much because he's such an unusually funny, warm, interesting, eccentric person. And um, so I <laughs> so I just like started watching the movie almost as like a, a I don't know, like as a, you know, kind of alternative to seeing him and um and it served some weird you know emotional friend purpose for me and um and so but i also loved the movie obviously i imagine you could do that with a movie that you don't love too but this happened to kind of coincide with a movie that i love which is just um you know it's such a it's such a special it's such a special movie it's telling a story that on paper has been told you know 10,000 times and i guess it you know it speaks to the idea that the best stories happen to those who can tell them, which implies that the telling of a story is more important than the kind of con than you know than the outline of a story. And the telling of this story is so innovative, original, heartfelt, odd, um, and at the same time like personal and removed. It has this unbelievable uh, juxtaposition of something that feels kind of you know, um, almost quirkily removed from an audience, uh, from from kind of like an audience appeasement, while at the same time being incredibly engaging. The comparison at when he premiered it at TIFF in, in 2010, the comparison was to Rushmore. Everybody was talking about Rushmore. And, and I can right. see that. But Rushmore is a movie made by Max Fisher. And this is a movie made right. by an adult. Right, right, right. That's a great a great analogy um yeah it's there's a kind of like a uh, commentary in submarine that is um not i don't i don't really consider the commentary wry it doesn't seem like um you know uh um like i would say you know intellectually um removed it feels um lived in and emotional and messy and you know it feels clumsy and homemade and spontaneous. And, uh, and that's a, a, yeah, a good way to put it. Yeah. I, I, um, I interviewed him, well, Ayade at the, uh, 
at the festival and it was the day the bidding war was going on although neither of us oh. or i didn't know it and he didn't mention it but i found him basically he was sort of hiding in a boardroom in a hotel oh, wow. just trying wow. not to think about it and we talked about badlands and taxi driver and yeah. films that influenced him far more than people realized i suspect oh yeah and um, then he was talking about them at the Q's and A's and getting blank stares because everybody wanted to talk about Rushmore and Harold and Maude because that's what it looks like. Mm, but mm, but the, the wonderful thing about this movie is that it it's hiding the same way that that its protagonist is hiding. Like there's there's a version of this where he is just this budding sociopath who's learned how to pass but doesn't have any emotions of his own. And then of course, over the course of the film, you just you realize he's nothing but emotion that he just doesn't know how to express. Right. Oh, that's really well put and probably a similar situation to what happened when we did the double, which was that um, people were comparing it to um, Brazil because it had a similar yeah. aesthetic. But uh, that was not one of the movies that I think, or at least was not prominent in his mind. Um, yeah, I mean, his taste is is deep and expansive and uh and unexpected and you know vast and, um and uh you know even <laughs> i mean the last time i was at his house he was showing his young kids um uh mary poppins but kind of looking at it from like um you know uh looking at it from a like a, a cinematic historical perspective rather oh, yeah. than you know child's entertainment um talking about you know the specific aesthetic and 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 why the comedy works in various areas and i was just thinking god it must be such a treat to be raised by such an interesting engaging thoughtful funny person yeah he is just a, a wonderful eccentric embodiment of curiosity is the only way like, yes. I've, I've only interviewed him twice but i've met him a number of other times just in passing the first time actually the first time i met him was <laughs> that festival in 2010 i was having mm -hmm. a a lunch interview with Danny Boyle for 127 hours oh, and wow. Richard came up to the table to introduce himself because he saw Danny Boyle and just couldn't not say hi and they'd never oh, met wow. oh, and wow. he apologized for interrupting he was like no please you can you can join us if you want I love your work yeah. and yeah. he's just he was just so ebullient he was just so much fun yes and, and then to make yes. a movie like this which is so somber in a way i mean i was expecting something broader and more comic but that's just not where his interests lie i have the exact same uh um kind of curiosity about him somebody who is so easily uh funny comic and then you know we were on the set of the double and it felt like the most i mean especially for me because my character is so fraught with uh anxiety and rage and you know um uh, you know severe psychological distress and like to see that like this is the funniest person i know um <laughs> and we're weeping in every scene and i just like i hope this has some humor too um and it's just his taste you know it's i think a lot of times this is probably my experience too people who are very funny like him um you know that sometimes um is harboring other stuff of course you know sure. um you know uh, uh, anxieties insecurities depths of you know uh, of emotions and you know um and uh and i think in the case of richard not only um you know is is part of that gestalt but also i think for him, um, I think when he's making something and it's his and his stamp is on it, I think he feels like it should be weighted a certain way. And so I think, you know, so the two movies that he's made and uh, and the next one that I think he's making that I that I know of, uh, like are just weighted in a way that I think make him feel 
like it represents the full depth of his spirit and interests. Um, on a kind of weird side note, if I may, um, uh, the, the director, Kelly Reichardt, who I got to do a movie with, uh, is the same way. She's so unbelievably funny. And I always told her, Kelly, you have to make a comedy. You're hysterically funny. And she said, you can't make a comedy, you know, if you're going to, you know, you tell a joke in this kind of movie and it ruins the movie, you know, especially like the movie we were doing, which was like a, a you know, <laughs> dark drama, you know, but, uh, you know, that's often the case. You know, you have people who are very witty, very funny and the ta and their taste when it comes to making their own stuff lies elsewhere. Yeah. And the, the feeling of Submarine 2, it definitely has that first feature, first novel thing where you can feel mm. the ideas that he desperately wants to get out there because he might never get another chance at doing this. I mean, you've just made yes. your first feature. It's <laughs> it's kind of similar. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I've been wanting to write um, music my whole life and this is my first movie and there's like, you know, 15 songs and I wrote them and then I had an amazing composer, Emil Mosseri, rewrite my melodies because they sounded like a teenager wrote them. And, uh, but like I was trying to get out everything. There's, you know, a five minute poem about the Marshall Islands that I want people to know. That's how I think about colonization. You know, it's that kind of early wonderful stuff that sometimes comes out as clumsy and sometimes comes out as inspired. And when I think back to like early stuff that I've written, I, I, I will look back at it because my background is, is playwriting. So I look back at my early plays and I'm like, this is the most wonderful line in the most clumsily written scene. This structure of the scene and the characters are totally inconsistent. And yet I will never write another thought that is so kind of inspired and original than that. But it's contextualized by nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, but that's the exuberance, right? I mean, that's the sense yeah. of the creative flow that, that gets you to where you need to be. Yes. I, the thing I always heard that rang true for me is like, you write aspirationally, you know, like I, I have this feeling that I want people to know that I know about the Marshall Islands. And that's the thing that inspires me to write the thing, you know, is that you feel like I, I want the world to know this thing about my mind. And so you do that. And so it's full of wonderful you know, eager, eager thoughts, um, and that are original to you because they've just been stuck in your head and you've not had that, um, you've not ha had the opportunity to take a lid off, so to speak yet. Um, and then I suppose as you age and make more things and feel more experienced and more confident, maybe you congeal a little more to, you know, the norms. Yeah. I always wonder how that works. I mean, does it, does a screenwriter eventually get to make an entire movie about like the Marshall Islands to use that example? <laughs> Right. Or with with Ayare, do you does he like his thing for Polish expressionism manifests in the double so clearly, <laughs> right? And was that the angle for him? I mean, because it's it's More an adaptation so. of a story, and is that his? Is that where it led him after Submarine? I'm sorry, I'm not trying to drag it back to him, but it's just such an interesting intersection. Yes, precisely that. I mean, and I'm not as film savvy, so I can't discuss like the specifics of his um, interest. But but what you said was is precisely that. I mean the movies that we talked about were more like Curtis um, uh, Maki rather than, um, you know, um, American comedies. So for example, there was a scene in the double where I, this was in the script stage. I was asking about a particular scene where I'm talking to my uh, coworker played by Noah Taylor. And the scene was like in the break room, uh, you know, at this office. And the scene was basically like, Hey, do you like that girl? And I was saying like, I, I do, but I don't know if she likes me. And I said to Richard, like this reads to me like a very, standard issue American comedy scene. What can we do to kind of spin it so it doesn't feel like, you know, the kind of American comedy kind of scene of nervous guy talking in break room with 
you know, raunchy coworker. And he said, oh, I don't think you understand. It's going to look like this. And he showed me a picture of something. He showed me the way the camera angle would be kind of uh, raked and skewed from shooting below. And it was, it looked like this kind of, as you say, Polish expressionism to me, it just reminded me of like, um, of, you know, kind of European horror um, and, uh, and, 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 and kind of harshly lit direct lighting rather than kind of soft lighting to make the protagonist seem accessible and relatable rather it was to make the protagonist look like he's coming from you know that he's on another planet um and to make noah taylor seem like he uh couldn't wouldn't even recognize my character if they ran into each other which is one of the themes of the movie and so like when i saw that i understood that he was going for exactly what you just said so taking a kind of like script that he might you know, be asked to act in, or I might be asked to act in, and then skewing it with a style that um, is completely uh, almost in opposition to those tropes that you would find in those like American comedies. Yeah. And you did get the opportunity on the double to work with, I think the entire cast of, of Submarine <laughs> is in it at yes. one point or another. I mean, did you, did they have any insight into, into Aiwati's process since this was your first time? Yes, it was, that was the most unusual experience I had was is that you know because I've been acting for 20 years and sometimes you play a role that's totally thankless you come on for one line I played a character in an M. Night Shyamalan movie called Boy on Stump um <laughs> you know which like you know it's like you know where the prop that you're holding has more um you know a significance than the person you are you know whatever um and I was you know thrilled to be in it obviously I love his stuff you know so um you know you're happy to be there as an actor but with this one it was the strangest experience because you'd have these incredible actors come in for essentially like these you know three or four line roles and I remember Sally Hawkins was playing somebody who um, is like uh, she plays like a, a security guard kind of at at, at this at this um, party for the office, and she was um, and and her and Richard were talking about her character. It was a three line part, um, and they created this unbelievably rich character, this character that both fit into the movie and also was its own thing. And I just remember thinking, that's why she's here. That's why Noah Taylor's here. That's why, you know, from down the line, you know, um, uh, um, you have these amazing actors doing these small roles because he asks of the actors to do something interesting, that they're not functionaries, that he's building a world. And in this world, people behave like this. And isn't this interesting to behave this way? And I remember telling him after that Sally Hawkins scene, I remember telling him, I will do anything for you ever, ever, ever. I will do catering. I will do anything. And um, I tell him that all the time. Please, when you're doing anything, please, please think of me as somebody who would love to do anything irrespective of the size or importance. Because it's so rare to find that even in a leading character, even when you're playing a leading character, sometimes you don't have the director thinking about your role in an interesting way. Or, you know, have you ever tried, you know, maybe pitching the performance slightly this way in a more stylized way, or maybe, I don't know, wearing this wig that is not necessarily um, the first thing you think of when you think of typical man in typical story. And so it just made me so grateful to be able to work with him in the capacity that I did and so grateful to be friends with him and hope to work together again. Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. 
Last week, I revisited War Games and Cloverfield through their new 4K editions and caught up with a few recent Criterion releases, including Todd Haynes' Velvet Underground documentary and a restoration of Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. Look, if I don't write about movies, I'll probably die. Help me out here. I mean, maybe it's just the thing of an actor becoming a filmmaker, which mm-hmm. again is something you can speak to, uh, mm-hmm. where you you have this level of maybe not confidence in your cast, but just trust from the mm-hmm. other direction because you've spent so much time trusting filmmakers or having to trust filmmakers who may or may not have your best interests as a performer at heart, right? So mm-hmm. I get the sense of that with him and with a few other, a handful, like Stiller is somebody else uh, as a director, mm-hmm. Ben Stiller, he seems mm-hmm. obsessed with making sure his actors get their moments because mm-hmm. he spent mm-hmm. so much time being just not overlooked exactly, but being miscalibrated in other That's people's work. Really well put. Yes, really, really well put. I have to say like, um, <laughs> I did a rehearsal with um, three of the actors in my movie and we we were all crying at the end of the rehearsal they played they had one or two lines each they played women who work at this shelter and by the end of our rehearsal we were probably was on zoom because it was during the pandemic and we were just talking about our experiences as they relate to you know domestic violence shelters and also acting and I was telling them about my acting disappointments and they were telling me about their acting disappointments and I rewrote the part because one woman told me that she felt uncomfortable saying a curse in the scene because she's religious I thought well that's fantastic can you be religious can you you know do whatever you would do as a as a you know a Christian woman working at this place that is Mm -hmm. so much more interesting than my idea of a cursory you know of a, of somebody who's cursing you know in a in a break room that is so much more interesting and so that's how I feel as an actor I w- love directors when they tell me that you know when I tell them I I'm feeling uncomfortable with the scene Kelly Reichardt for example this is a perfect example I told Kelly I have curly hair in your movie and I'm playing an eco-terrorist doesn't it look weird that I have like a kind of pleasant haircut of somebody who looks like they might be like I don't know, just like a kind person because I have, you know, big curly hair. And she was like, no, that's interesting. Use it. Embrace it. Don't shave your head. That's wonderful. I've never seen that before. And it just made me think, oh, right. When you think outside the box, you have a more kind of interesting texture to something that people have maybe seen before. And Richard has that in spades. Yeah. I remember Alice Lowe um, did the podcast way, way back years and years ago. Uh, And we briefly, before we started recording, talked about uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. And mm-hmm. I just, I had to know, because it's it drives me up the wall that you could make something that perfect and insular and hermetic and never, ever break. Except yeah. when at those those rare moments in the show where they break intentionally and, and sort of right. tilt the world. And she just said, we always knew when to do that. It was instinctive. It wasn't in the script. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was something that we all understood, like a communal moment mm-hmm. where you're allowed to do that. And again, that comes from the trust of the people who've created it to just let the mm-hmm. actors have it. Yes. And and the world that you build that way feels more lived in. And And yeah, the curly hair thing is exactly right. It's an incongruous thing. But right. we, we in the audience decide there must be a reason for it. So exactly, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And it's and it's and it's the difference between somebody who's trying to make something that they've never seen before and somebody who's trying to make something that they've seen before. And I've had both experiences. And the strange truth of all of this is that sometimes when you're in something that is being made like something they've seen before, they're really successful because, you know, movies are mass entertainment. And sometimes when you make something that's familiar, it's embraced by you know, lots of people. 
Um, and sometimes conversely, when you make something that's really artful, original, um, you know, um, no one sees it. So, so you, you don't know, you don't know when you, you know, when you're doing it and it, the, it's hard to say what equation works, but, you know, my feeling is, and especially at the level I'm working at, which is independent, small, intimate kind of movies, which is the movies I want to make. Um, uh, it's riskier to try to make something that appeases an audience than to make something that uh, feels true to you because it's the nature of this size of movie. Um, and, uh, you know, and Submarine is a, just a perfect example of somebody who is making the exact thing that they want to make. Um, and the times that I think it appeases the audience are unexpected. And by that, I mean, there's kind of like a happy ending. There's kind of like, um, you know, quirky parents who don't understand son. You know, these things are like what I would consider like movie tropes, safe movie tropes. Um, and yet they're done in a completely original, sly way with, with a certain kind of feeling that you haven't, you can't exactly pinpoint. Well, the music does so much of that too. I mean, the fact that Alex Turner is just helping it along emotionally with songs that, and I love the fact that the film is set in the 80s, but you have a modern singer-songwriter, the man of the moment, really, because the Arctic Monkeys were, were never bigger than they were in 2010. Oh, is that right? Oh, wow. You're hearing songs from the future, which is another way of sort of telling <laughs> you that an adult made this movie, right? That this isn't Oliver telling his own story. This is looking <laughs> back, Oliver. This is someone who's trying to make it palatable, maybe, and make him <laughs> yes, take yes, his edges yes. off and make himself a little more of a human. Yes, and and a, and a feeling of nostalgia and that you know feeling of safety that you can grow past this difficult moment. Yeah, that's the feeling that it evokes. And then also like the tone of the music being what we consider more like modern kind of folk style music singer songwriter mm -hmm. um that feels yeah exactly taking some of the edge off that's a really good way to put it yeah and it's i think it's why uh, patty considine's character is allowed to have not a happy ending but a positive resolution like he's not a monster he's not just there to steal the girl he's mm -hmm. he's there to be helpful and i think right. like the more i think about it the more i feel like he's oliver's vision of himself if you know if my thesis of oliver making this movie 30 years down the road to right. tell his own story um is the is true then i think what we're seeing is him reconsidering this man who he saw as a villain yes. but ultimately decided yes. <laughs> wasn't so bad and maybe yeah. could have been the way oliver ends up if he doesn't change if he doesn't grow <laughs> that's a wonderful wonderful analysis yeah that's so interesting and like yeah with hindsight comes forgiveness and if this movie is an example of hindsight and growth then of course right there should not be villains and heroes yeah and Considine is so good at that it's just that that strange there was this period in in British cinema where he was exclusively cast as a as a not a, an agent of chaos but a threat mm -hmm. he would show up and derail something mm. um started i think with the room for romeo brass and then he's the he's a fundamentalist brother in my summer of love uh pavel oh, pavlikowski's right. first film and so funny i, I think, just remember him from in america as like the most lovable dad that's right you know, that's how saw, that's how jim yeah. sheridan saw him right yeah that's interesting yeah why, why do you think that is that some people see him that way i think it's where you saw him first because mm -hmm. he does he does That's lean it. towards intensity his he's got he's got a sort of a set to his jaw yeah. um he's in the born one of the born movies also early oh, on really? he gets he gets picked off in uh, waterloo station he plays a guardian journalist <laughs> oh wow oh that's interesting supremacy wow. the second one and he's he owns the movie for five minutes and then he's gone really but he was such a this electric I, I joke about this on Twitter constantly and I probably should stop, but I, there is somewhere down the line, there's a movie where Patty Considine and Sam Rockwell play brothers who own a bar in New York and fall for the same That's woman. Brilliant. I know, I, I know. 
I want I to see that so badly. But I know it's inevitable. His energy know, is his energy is so flexible that he can be the the heavy or the sweetest man in the world. And in this film, he's both because yeah, you yeah, you yeah. see it come out. That's a great point. Yes, and to to I would just say like from my American eyes, I guess having seen him in that movie because that movie felt very um, accessible to me as an American and a New Yorker, sure. um, and I'm just thinking about like the immigrant experience and everything. That's like how he's implanted in my mind. But the thing you said that I thought was so interesting, which is like I guess it depends on the first thing you see the person in, and this is like the wonderful blessing and the curse of being an actor, which is just like you are the thing that made an impact on whoever's making the next thing that, that you're in. Yeah. And it's something that you specifically, I mean, you've been the guy for your energy for very, a very long stretch of your career. And I, mm -hmm. and I really, I mean, things like night moves versus, you know, obviously Batman v Superman is probably the, the biggest machine you've been in. Yeah. But then to see something like night moves was, yes. was so striking because it's like, oh no, this is where you're happy. Like, this is what you want. Yes, and even yes, though you're yes. not, you're not playing a good person at all in that film, you are so good at finding that needle. Thank you so much. Yes, not only am I happy uh, in there, I'm like completely, I remember being on the set of The Double with Richard and just going up to him and said, I don't think I've ever felt like um, a movie is like a gift before. This is the first time I feel like this is like a gift every day. I'm exhilarated, like completely exhilarated. I've always uh, felt very grateful to be working and especially to be working on wonderful things, but I felt a lot of pressure. And with Richard, because he directs in such a way that everybody feels like what they're doing is both like original and something that's coming from within them um, and not prescribed by what the script in, needs or something. Um, uh, I just felt like it was just an unbelievable gift. The movie I just finished acting in, I play a Sasquatch in full costume, <laughs> three and a half hours of makeup um, and um, uh, and with no lines. And like, I could not be happier. Like to me, this is just like, those are the gifts. And then it's just this weird thing of being in an art form that also co that also like has a mass appeal, you know, sometimes is that then you wind up in things that are really commercial and you have to kind of like figure out how can I take that interesting thing that I love and kind of impose it on this thing that is, is uh, really designed for others. Yeah. I never understood the disconnect that must exist between standing in front of a camera and being projected in IMAX, right? Like knowing that that's where it's going to end up, that it's <laughs> going to be that kind of thing. And I have friends who are, who are actors who've worked for decades now, and they too are just mystified by it because it is such a personal, intimate thing to pretend to be somebody yeah. else in front of a big room. Yeah. And then to know that whatever you're doing in its tiniest detail <laughs> will be scrutinized at that scale. That's hysterical. Yeah, I was on IMAX. In the Batman movie, they filmed like some scenes on IMAX. The The nuisance of it is that you can't record sound because the 70 millimeter print going through is so loud. Yeah. Um, and I remember I remember just thinking, this is so surreal. And what you just said is exactly it. It's There's this disconnect between this personal thing that we're doing in a room in Pontiac, Michigan, that is then going to be like broadcast in the biggest way we have figured out as a society to broadcast something. And yeah, it just is the disconnect that you feel generally doing a personal thing, even if it's on stage in an off-Broadway play where you're doing this kind of intimate show, but there's 200 people in front of you sitting in the dark, trying not to talk, you know, or trying mm. to be quiet as you do this thing or the 70 millimeter thing, or just in front of a movie crew, you know, where it's, you know, 30 people standing around, you know, who are not crying like you in the center of the circle. 
Well, and because we're just about to run out of time, uh, I just wanted to ask the the usual closer on the podcast, which is, is there anything, did you lean on anything from Submarine? Did you even just ask Ayoade for tips as a, as a first-time filmmaker? Was, was there a moment where you, you fell back to it? Richard is like the, whoever is the person, whoever is the kind of person who loves giving advice is the opposite person of Richard. He is <laughs> so, you know, kind of self-effacing and, um, you know, wry that, uh, no, I didn't dare ask him for any advice because he would have said something that would have embarrassed me. Um, but, uh, I, you know, um, but I owe him so much. Um, when I think about Submarine using music in a way that can feel jarring and uh, and sharp um, against scenes that are sweet, um, when I think of the way he used uh, zooms to kind of... Mm, kind of uh, wink with at the audience and um, satirize um, a clumsiness in characters that uh, um, would otherwise just look uh, earnest or awkward. When he can mix something that feels heart-wrenching with something that feels sly and uh and funny and knowing um i like feel like i owe him that because you know he's not afraid of style um he makes a movie that in another another person's hands would be a kind of down the middle coming of age piece mm, with occasional you know flashes of um unique structure flashbacks flash forwards etc but in his world um there was no style that felt uh, at odds with the whole, and yet it was varied at all points. And I did just a little bit of that, and I allowed myself to do um, a little more than I would have if Submarine didn't exist. My thanks to Jesse Eisenberg, whose debut feature, When You Finish Saving the World, is now playing in the U.S. and opens in Canada this Friday, January 27th. In Toronto, you can catch it at the Tiff Bell Lightbox. Thanks also to Melanie Mangatu. She knows what she did. Jesse's not on Twitter, but you can keep track of his movie by following A24 and Sphere Films CA there. And while Submarine was released on Blu-ray and DVD by Anchor Bay Entertainment, it looks like it's out of print these days. But it's currently streaming on Hollywood Suite, Sundance Now, and AMC Plus in Canada, and on Tubi in the U.S., and it's available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.